Welcome. 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 Okay, I have to stop saying good morning because people watch online like 24 hours a day, so it's not morning sometimes. So welcome to Greenbelt. It's great to have you here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you personally yet, my name's Kevin. I serve as the lead pastor here. Um, before I dive into today's message, I just want to first, um, from the bottom of my heart, um, just absolutely thank you for your incredible generosity. Um, we finished 2018 uh, with a surplus of about $11,000 over our expected budget. Let there be light. Okay. It's just so exciting that we wanted to kind of raise the applause as we shared that news this morning. No, and this is just really exciting. And just your generosity just means the world to me. Like when we, we kind of plan and expect kind of ministry and things like that, you know, we have a budget giving surpassed it. And here's the beauty too, is we actually spent less. Right, and so we're going to talk a lot more about this at our annual general meeting in, on uh, February the 10th. But this is just an exciting way to just start the ministry season off. You know, it just puts us in such a healthy position to be a blessing to our city, to missionaries, to the work that God is doing. So it's just really exciting. And so again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for your generosity. Um, last night, I had an amazing conversation with someone who um, personally doesn't have much of a church experience. And it's a friend of mine who's been following everything that we've been doing here at Greenbelt through our social media. And he was fascinated by this merger that we had just gone through with our Arabic uh, brothers and sisters and starting this new Arabic congregation, this Arabic service. I mean, and he was asking all these questions about it. And he goes, like, why would you do that? Was his number one question. Why would you why would you do that? That seems like a crazy amount of work. And and then he kind of shared, well, the reason he was asking that is because his, like his limited church experience came more from his grandparents and his parents, who were very rigid on how you do church. The church is like this, and we will die before we change it. And those churches did, in fact, die. Right? And so to completely change things and do things differently wasn't in his wheelhouse when he thought about the church. And I kind of explained to him quickly, it's like, well, here's the challenge that all of us face as the church in the world today. What we believe drives what we do. And this is true in church life, and this is true in your life. And in my life, what you believe drives what you do. For example, if you firmly believe in fitness and healthy eating, and that you know every person should be you know healthy and fit and slim, and, and this is a massive belief of yours, but you eat fast food 20 times a week, the last time you ever broke a sweat was sitting under a, a, a palm tree sipping a pina colada in 45-degree weather. What you believe drives what you do, how you live. So that's what we've been doing is this series of looking at the heart of God when it comes to the church. What I shared with my friend is sometimes churches, what they believe, they say they believe one thing, but in reality what they believe is we have to guard our building, we have to guard our budget, or I have to guard my leadership. I may not use those words, but the actions show that. And so we can't be so focused on, you know, what we do. We have to understand 
what we believe. Last week, we started this off, and we looked at what is God's heart for the church? What does he want from you? What does he want from me? And we saw through looking at the Bible that God wants all of us to grow in maturity. He doesn't want us to just settle for a faith that's fine. He wants us to grow and become more like Jesus. Now, we're not all clones, and we're not all copy carbon copies of one another. We have different gifts and different passions and different personalities and different experience. But ultimately, we should be growing in maturity, in Christian maturity, looking more like Jesus in the world. And that also brings about a state of unity. We're not about defending our platform, defending our building, defending our budget, whatever, as we live in unity with one another, showing the world God's love. What I want us to do today is look at a whole bunch of different scriptures again, and I want us to talk, this week we're going to talk about the mission of our church, and then next week we're going to conclude this talking about the vision of our church. And the reason this stuff is important to talk about a lot is because we have to remember what we believe. It's not about church programs, it's not about just kind of doing things the way we've always done it. We actually have to ask ourselves, what do we truly believe, and let that drive what we do. Don't let the tradition, the values, what we're comfortable with drive what we do. Let what we, what we believe drive what we do. So I want to talk about the mission that God has called us to as a church. And I'm going to start in Isaiah chapter 61. If you want to follow along, you can uh, do so. Uh, There's a Bible in the chair in front of you. If you're here with us today and you do not own a Bible, that Bible is our gift to you today. Please just write your name in that. Take it home with you. If you're joining us online and you do not own a Bible, email me and I'll send one to you. I'm a big believer. Every family should own a Bible. So Isaiah 61, if you're not 100% sure where that is, there's a table of contents at the beginning, or just kind of go to the middle of your Bible. You should find the big chapter called Isaiah in there, or a big book called Isaiah. Isaiah 61. This is the prophet Isaiah. Now, to understand a little bit of the context of what's happening here, see, a prophet was a person who would receive messages from God and then deliver the message. Now, a lot of the times, the messenger wasn't popular, hence the expression, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> because messengers usually came with a message that the receiver doesn't like. And what happened a lot in the history of Israel is that the people of Israel would go off, they would stop worshiping God, they would start worshiping pagan gods, they would start just living any way they wanted to live, and God would call a prophet to go back to the people and say, look, they're not living for me, they're not keeping their end of the bargain, let's get them back on track. The prophet would show up with a message of, stop living this way. But sometimes prophets would come with words of encouragement and words of blessing as well. And so this section here, Isaiah lived about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And Israel had gone through a lot of turmoil, and the state of Israel actually split into two kind of dividing states. So you had Judah and you had Israel. And the Assyrians were rising in power, And God told the people of Israel, told the the people of Judah that through the prophet that they were going to basically be taken over by the Assyrians. That the Assyrians were going to come in and wipe them out, going to send them into exile, they were going to become captives and all of this. And it's in this message of (laughs) life is about to get really, really hard (laughs) that the prophet brings some encouragement 
to the people. That even though the Assyrians are rising in power, that, that God still loves you. God is still with you. God is still in control. And this is what the prophet brought to the people here in Isaiah 61. He says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting for the Lord, for the display of his splendor. You see, these are powerful words that God is sharing to people who are about to go through captivity, about to go through trial and hardship. That God is still a God of blessing. That God has not abandoned you nor forsaken you. That God is still with you, even though you're going to go through this trial and tribulation. And that God is going to do amazing things. Now, fast forward 700 years, and Jesus is on the scene, and he's in a local synagogue where they're doing a service very similar to what we would do. They would read some scripture, they'd sing some songs, and then a, the speaker would unpack the scripture that they, that they read. And Jesus was handed the scroll of Isaiah 61. And Jesus reads this, reads this ch- chapter of, of Isaiah 61, and then Jesus puts the scroll down and says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, when Jesus reads this, Jesus is saying, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. He's made it personal. And Jesus is basically showing everyone through this text what he has already started doing. right? How he has come to set free the brokenhearted. That he's giving freedom to captives. He's releasing from darkness the prisoners. He's healing the blind. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's feeding the hungry. And Jesus goes, today this has become true. And everyone's like, ah, this is so exciting. But then Jesus says these other words in John's gospel. And this, I think, is where it gets so exciting. When you let these words sink in, change what we believe to change how we live. Like what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment. I'm going to do everything here in Isaiah 61. And Jesus says in John 14, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. You, if you have faith in me, you will do Isaiah 61. And he will do even greater things than these. What you believe will drive how you live. Now, if you're anything like me, there's a little part in my heart and in my mind that goes, it it sounds almost like um, blasphemy to say, I could do greater things than Jesus. Doesn't it? Doesn't it just make your skin kind of crawl a little bit that Jesus calls followers 
to do even greater things than him? He's God. How can me, a sinful man, do greater things than God? But what I believe will drive how I live. If I believe I'm no good, I'm small, I'm insignificant, I'm a sinner, I'm useless, whatever, that'll change how you live. Jesus says these things in Isaiah 61. He has fulfilled them, and our mission is to continue the work that he has done, and we will do even greater. You know why? Because there was one of him and millions of us. (laughs) And it changes the world when you change what you believe. (laughs) It changes the world when you change what you believe. And what I love about Isaiah 61 is it starts in Isaiah makes the switch to the people of God. That the people of God will be an oak of righteousness for the display of God's splendor. On this side of the crucifixion, the side of church history that you and I live in, the they becomes the church. Now, I don't want to get into the theological debate of church, replacement of the people of Israel, blah, blah, blah. I'm not talking about that. But you and I, as Christians, are the they. We are the instruments that God is using in the world to display God's splendor. We are like an oak tree with roots that go deep to display God's splendor in the world. We will do even greater things than these So the big idea that I want us to unpack today is that you and I are the display of God's splendor. And we at Greenbelt, we are doing that through the mission of knowing, living, and sharing Jesus. That's our mission statement, that we are a church that is knowing and living and sharing Jesus. And if you've been here for a long time, you've heard this a lot, but it's important to always talk about it, because we've got to remember Because what we believe drives what we do. And you and I suffer from this thing called forgetfulness. (laughs) And we forget. And then we start doing things more out of our tradition, out of our comfort, out of our preference, what we like, instead of out of what we actually believe. (laughs) So what I want to do is unpack a little bit of this knowing, living, and sharing Jesus and how you and I display God's splendor. You know, looking again, not my opinion, but looking at what the Bible says so that you can, all of us, can work on our belief so we can work on how we are living out our faith. Now, one of the things that I usually present when I'm talking about this, when I put these three circles on the screen, one of these days I'm going to hire a real graphic designer to design something better than just like Mickey Mouse ears. But um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I want you to just think for a moment three circles, one circle, two circles, three circles. Think Mickey Mouse, okay? That's our church strategy. We have a Mickey Mouse strategy here at our church. Okay, look at the multi-bajillion dollars Disney is. When people say, well, you have a Mickey Mouse organization, I wish. <laughs> I wish I was the president of a Mickey Mouse organization, okay? <laughs> Wouldn't be driving a minivan. Okay, but I digress. We believe in a simple church model. We don't have 27. We don't have 100 different programs competing for time, money, and resources that you know are just kind of running to kind of keep Christians happy. We believe in a real simple model of ministry. We ask people to do three things, to grow in your faith, to become more like Jesus so that you will be God's splendor. We ask you to make Sunday regular. We ask you to join a life group, and we ask you to serve. Three things, and we think that you will grow by leaps and bounds if you commit to those three things. So I want to explain to you a little bit how we believe through the teachings of Scripture we display God's splendor through those three things. 
So the first is I want to talk about Sunday morning. Why is Sunday morning important? See, we live in a culture, we live in a climate today where we are all incredibly, incredibly mobile. I'm incredibly mobile. Through my cell phone, I can watch the best preachers in the world, listen to the best worship leaders in the world, the best music in the world. I can actually listen to the preacher I like and listen to the music I like. I'm just kind of just going to share this personally. It's not loud enough in here. This is just my preference. Okay. And some of you are going, what? No, this is like, this, this is like, this is like old lady church. Like it's quiet. This is like whisper stuff. Like I'm sitting there going, like for me, like if my ears aren't bleeding, the Holy Spirit's not moving. Okay, for me, if I can't feel my rib cage moving, the Holy Spirit's not trying to just burst out of my, my chest, right? So I like it loud, like, bleed, let the ears bleed. We're not going to do that here. It's okay. We all have a preference, right? We all have a style. But Sunday morning isn't about that. Sunday morning's not just about hearing whatever preacher we want to hear and hearing whatever music we want to hear. There is something supernatural that happens when the children of God gather. There is something supernatural that happens when the sons and daughters of God gather together. And the Bible actually teaches that when non-Christians see it, they go, wow, God is real. This is not a country club. This is not a tradition. This is a supernatural gathering of the family of God. And we display God's splendor, we believe, through two things that we are sold out and committed to. The first is unapologetic preaching. The unapologetic preaching of God's word. This is what the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. He said, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. All of Paul's preaching was pointing people, Christian or non-Christian, to Jesus. I resolved to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. We as Christians need to be reminded of the good news of the resurrection of Jesus every single minute of every single day. (laughs) Because we forget. (laughs) And we drift. (laughs) And Paul's heart was to proclaim nothing but Christ crucified. I took a course in seminary on biblical preaching and the, preacher, the teacher said, every single page, every single page of this book should point someone to Jesus. Every page. Every sermon. It's not about the sermon. It's not about the text that you're in. It's not about the Greek. It's not about the Hebrew. It's not about ancient Israel history. It's not about whatever doctrine that you love to study. It's not about whatever pet theological bend that you love to fight for. It's about Jesus and Jesus crucified. And that's it. So, you know, when you sit there and you've got to prep a sermon and just randomly open it up and say, okay, I'm going to talk about, oh, let's just randomly pick Psalm 17. Hear me, Lord, my plea is just. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. I should be able to use that text and point people to Christ, that Christ is the fulfillment of this, that Christ has come. Christ will hear my plea. Christ will wipe away every tear from my eye. We proclaim Jesus And Jesus crucified, we proclaim him alone. And this is why this has to be, we've got to ingrain this. We have to believe this because in Paul's day, this is what he said in chapter 1, verse 23, in the same letter, he said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. 
unapologetically preaching what the Bible says is not popular. It's like, that's crazy talk that you believe this. And we live in this advanced civilization of science and philosophy and all these different faith groups and all of this different stuff. And we can start to believe, well, maybe we shouldn't really say what's in here. Because we have to grow our church. We don't want people to leave. We have to pay our bills. I'd like to pay my salary if people leave. So I better start preaching what people want to hear. The Bible calls that catering to man. (laughs) Of tickling ears to please people. And when churches do that, we see them closing at a rapid rate. (laughs) Not because their heart's not right. But their theology, what they believe, is not driving what they do. Unapologetic preaching of God's word. We will say what this book says unapologetically. That doesn't mean we're jerks. doesn't mean we go around smacking people with this. We preach it with love and grace and mercy and gentleness, with love and care, of thinking of other people as better than ourselves, all these other verses that we can pull out. Because we want people to know Jesus. Jesus is the stumbling block. I tell people all the time, don't let our style of music be the stumbling block. Don't let my preaching style be the stumbling block. Don't let the fact that I'm wearing a Superman t-shirt under this shirt be the stumbling block. Some of you now, that's all you're thinking about and you want to see it. I'm not showing it to you. Get over it. It's about Jesus. (laughs) Okay? It's not about the distractions. It's about Jesus. Let Jesus be the stumbling block. I'd rather have someone leave this church furious with me because I said Jesus is the only way to God than, eh, I didn't like the book. I didn't like, eh, eh, than someone leaving indifferent or whatever. It's a stumbling block, but we'll still preach it unapologetically and trust the Spirit of God to work. That's supernatural. That's supernatural when that happens. The second part of Sunday is the other part that we do is the singing. We call it unashamed adoration. Unashamed adoration. Right? Worship is such an important part of the Christian journey. It's such an important part of who we are as followers of Jesus. When the Bible, the New Testament, uses worship, it's, there's actually two different Greek words. One is how you live your life. Do it as a spiritual act of worship, like you're a priest. <laughs> Imagine you're a priest doing holy work. That is your spiritual act of worship. The other Greek word for worship is the adoring of God, falling to your knees before your master. There's a physical component to worship. There's a heart component to worship. And Jesus teaches about this in John chapter 4. He's talking with this woman at the well. He's confronting her on her sexual lifestyle choices. And she decides she doesn't want to talk about her sexual history and changes the subject to worship. Awesome that she still is picking an incredibly hot topic and a divisive topic, sex and worship, right? Both difficult things to talk about. And Jesus says this about worship. He says, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's emotion, spirit of God, truth of God's word, for these are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. As a Christian leader, this is one of those verses that bothers me. Because God is seeking a certain type of worship, not style of worship. 
It's not contemporary. It's not traditional. It's not loud. It's not quiet. It's not in English. It's not in Arabic. It has nothing to do with the style. But there's a certain type of worship that God seeks. And the implication of that text is that means there's a type of worship where God doesn't show up. Now, where two or more are gathered, God is there. I'm not arguing that. The Holy Spirit is there. As long as two Christians are in the room, the Holy Spirit is there. But there is something supernatural about the work of the Holy Spirit when we are truly worshiping in spirit and in truth. And the Father loves that. He seeks that out. But we can get comfortable. We can get stuck. And this is a difficult thing to grow in. How do we develop that spiritual component of worship? You know how I grew in this this year? Is I spent all of November and all of December attending the Arabic service. I was hoping they were going to sing our songs translated. So at least I could hum along. Or I could sing the lyrics that I know to the tune. They didn't do that. They sing their music with their tune. And it's, you know, and, and they like reverb on the singer. So the singer's got this reverb and the piano, the organ. And it's just like, and I'm sitting over there, worshiping my guts out. I don't know the language. I don't know the culture. I don't know anything. All I can do is adore God in that moment. Because it has nothing to do with my comfort. It has nothing to do with my preference. It's a challenge to learn that because we want to guard our hearts that we don't just drift and become comfortable. So unashamed adoration. I love how James McDonald describes this in his book, Vertical Church. He says, whoever God has made you, redline it. If you're like kind of this uptight, cold Norwegian, not an insult against Norwegians if you're Norwegian, but if that's you, redline it. Just go from here to here. Redline it. That's, that's the best you got. So if you're Jamaican, redline it. Okay? But just redline who God made you to be. I'm an introvert. I, you know, I don't like to do a big show. People, yeah, right. Okay? No, it's true. When I'm worshiping, I worship. It's a private. It's intimate. You know, but just work on that heart part. But keep it true. Keep it true. Paul says, you know what? We do it orderly. We don't just start running around doing whatever we want on Sunday morning because non-Christians are among us. We don't want them leaving here going, what a bunch of wackos. It's teachings of the Bible. It's not whatever we want. We have freedom in our faith, but God wants to reach everybody, right? So unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration. We display God's splendor that way on Sunday. I want to move on to life groups, how we display God's splendor through life groups. Two ways that we do this. The first is through intentional discipleship. Intentional discipleship. Every single one of you is on a different path. Not a different path, but at a different spot in your relationship with Jesus. Some of you have been walking for Jesus, walking with Jesus longer than I've been alive. Some of you are brand new in this relationship. Some of you have kind of soared. Some of you have hit valleys. Some of you are being picked up. Some of you are being built up. We're all on a different spot in this journey. And we firmly believe intentional discipleship happens best, excuse me, in the context of meaningful relationship with other Christians. And that's why we set up our ministry, because this is a because this is what we believe, we set up ministry to run that way. That's why we want every adult in a life group, because we believe it is the best way to grow in your faith. We want every adult in a life group. That's why we 
have our fusion, our teen ministry, to get every single teenager in a group with their small group time to build those relationships. That's why we've even started in kids' ministry, taking kids and letting them have, have discussion time around that, you know, the Bible as well, to get them used to this concept of doing life with other people right at a very young age. Because we firmly believe this is so incredibly important. Because look at what the writer of Hebrews writes here in Hebrews 10, verse 23 to 25. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We stir one another up in love. We stir one another up in how we are living our lives. And we do that through the context of relationship. We do this. This is an intentional thing. You have to be intentional with it. It just doesn't happen because If we just let it happen, we'll do this. We'll just kind of stop doing it, as some are in the habit of doing. Because it's easier to stop than to be intentional. We've got to intentionally engage with this. And the reason we want intentional discipleship is because the second thing about this, how we display God's splendor, is that we believe firmly in nurturing relationships. As a church is small... Nurturing relationships happens naturally and organically. When a church is small, everybody knows everybody. And everybody knows everybody's business. I remember the small little country church that my grandmother worked, you know, uh, used to attend up in Temiskaming, Quebec. And we'd go up to that little church when we were there in the summertime, you know, and the people already knew that Kevin, Karen, and Kimberly were visiting Grandma long before we ever set foot in the building. Okay, you just knew what everyone was doing and everything that was going on. That's what, you know, small churches in the country can do. But when a church gets larger, we're supposed to know everybody based on what scripture. There's not a verse that says that we're supposed to be united, supposed to be of one mind and all these other things. But it doesn't say we have to know everybody intimately when a church grows these nurturing relationships become even more important to fight for because scripture says these nurturing relationships are important that will bear one another's burdens, will encourage one another, pray for one another, care for one another. All these one another statements that the Bible talks about need to be lived out. But we believe they're done best in the context of relationship. And we want those relationships to develop in life groups. See, And what the real powerful thing about life groups too is it's so incredibly countercultural. Like, our culture is a culture of self. Our culture is a culture that's easily offended. Our culture is a culture where, eh, we don't really like to overcommit to something. We like to have an easy on-ramp or an easy off-ramp, you know? Because in case a better offer comes around or a better job or a better whatever, you know, it's like we don't like to overly sign the dotted line, become a member, join, you know, join up, sign up. But life groups is different. That I'm going to intentionally open up myself to someone else. Someone I might disagree with. And not get offended. You know, that's humanly possible. Because the Bible teaches it that we can work through this and we learn how to do this. It's not that everyone has to know everybody, but everybody must be known. 
So that's how we display God's splendor, living a countercultural life of intentional discipleship, of nurturing relationships. And then finally, the other way we display God's splendor is through serving, is through serving. Right? Every single Christian has what the Bible calls a spiritual gift. If you put your faith in Jesus, if you believe that Jesus saves you from sin, and you put your faith in him, you've asked that God would forgive you, the Bible says you become new. You get this new spirit in you, and you are given spiritual gifts, not for your personal blessing, not for your personal edification, not for your personal spiritual journey. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit, the spiritual gifts, is given for the common good. He's talking about this common good, the body of Christ. You have been given a spiritual gift so that I can grow in my faith. And if you are not using your spiritual gift in the way God has called you to use it, I am stumbling in my faith. Your pastor is stumbling in his faith if you are not living out and using your spiritual gift. That's what the Bible teaches. That the body, everyone is needed to accomplish the work that God wants. Church is never supposed to be that you benefit from my spiritual gift and I flounder alone. (laughs) That's not body life, right? And so you have been receiving this gift for the common good, to bless the church. (laughs) To bless the church. So we set up ministry in such a way we don't want people serving out of duty, out of, well, I've always done this and I hate it, but uh, here comes Sunday, I'm going to do it again. No, be freed in Jesus' name to stop that. (laughs) Work in your gifting. If you are working in your gifting, you will love it. I know when I'm not working in my gifting. It's when people say, hey, Kevin, would you volunteer up in kids' ministry for a while? Yes. I did that for a season in my former church where I had to teach kids' ministry for three months. I love my kids sometimes. (laughs) I'm kidding. You know real quick when you're not working in your gift. Church is not supposed to be miserable. It's not supposed to stress you out. It's not supposed to give you an ulcer when you are working in the common good. Okay? So we want you to be a blessing to others. And then finally, how do we display God's splendor through serving? We do it when we serve the world. Right? We can have great programs, you know, to bless our city. But ultimately, the best way that we bless our city is so that people will know that we have been with Jesus and they can meet with Jesus as well. It's great to have good programs, benevolent programs, feeding the poor, all those things, and we will continue to do that kind of work. But ultimately, we feed the poor so they can know the love of God, that we will reach out to people who are marginalized so they will know the love of God. We will fully live out what Jesus calls his followers to live out in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. This is that power again, those spiritual gifts. You'll receive this power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Think of it as Ottawa, Canada, rest of the world. We are all called to be a blessing to Ottawa, Canada, rest of the world, through the gifts and the power that God has given you. Because Jesus said, you will do even greater things than I did. My question for you is, do you actually believe that? Because what you believe will change how you live. 
when I first started attending Greenbelt eight years ago, eight and a half years ago, a number of people kept telling me, uh, Greenbelt, God wants Greenbelt to stay small. That God doesn't really want to use Greenbelt to bless the city. We're just, you know, a nice little small family church. I'm okay, I hear what you're saying. Now, I'm a math guy. I'm a, I'm a numbers guy. And we actually had 25 years of spreadsheets and data. So I took all this 25 years of data and crunched the numbers and saw consistently over the 25 years before I got here, God supernaturally would grow this place like crazy. And then we'd be like, ah, we don't know anything out of this one. And then we'd shrink back to a more manageable size. And then God would send more and more people, supernaturally grow like crazy. We'd all get stressed out. Ah, and then, okay, okay, back to manageable. Well, what if we don't hold on to this is the only way we do it because we actually believe that there's a million people out there who don't know Jesus. And if we're not going to reach them, who will? Because the mission is to display God's splendor everywhere that we go. And it's not about the program. It's about the person. It's because Jesus died for us. It's because Jesus took bread He said, this bread represents my body broken for you. And I love the picture of broken bread as it crumbles to the ground. There is no way to put this back together. I could dip it in water. I could try to make it pasty and stick back together. But this bread is broken. And this is the body of our Savior. Because he loves us so much, because he loves you so much, he would die for you. And that when you turn from your sin and turn to a God who would die for you, you're brought into his family. You're brought into his mission to change the world, to display God's splendor in our families, our workplace, our school, our community. So we're going to take communion together. We're going to take bread and a little cup of juice together. If you're here today and maybe you're not too sure what you believe about Jesus I would just ask that you just let these things go by. I'm so glad that you're here. And if you've got questions about Jesus, we'd love to talk to you about that. But this is for those of us who've kind of committed our lives and our hearts to following Jesus. When the bread is passed, just hold it and we'll take it together. And while you're holding it, just, just pray for a moment. Reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus has done for you and ask yourself the question, am I displaying God's splendor? Does my life display God's splendor? Or am I just going through the motions? If I settled for a faith, that's fine. Because I firmly believe Jesus wants to do more. Jesus has called us to more, to not just settle, to go through Christian motions. Are we displaying God's splendor? I'm going to call our ushers, our elders and deacons up. We're going to be handing this out and... um, Call the ushers forward, distribute it, and again, just when you receive it, just hold it for a moment and we'll take it together. So on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He said, this, bre- this bread represents my body, broken for you. Let's do this in remembrance of him. So after supper, Jesus took a cup. He said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which brings about the forgiveness of sin forgiven you're forgiven of your sin and because of that relationship we live out
God's call on our lives to be a display of his splendor as we know, live, and share Jesus everywhere we go. Let's do this in remembrance of him.